I think it's our own sort of conscious or unconscious assumptions about gender and how it is presented in the classroom that prevents, I think, a lot of learning from happening. And then when something actually happens in the classroom, we don't know how to respond to it because we are caught flat-footed about it. Welcome to this episode of What We're Learning About Learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning created and produced by the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, also known as CANDLES, at Georgetown University. I'm Kim Heisman-Lubreski. And I'm Joe King. With this podcast series, we attempt to keep our ears to the ground and bring you conversations from across higher ed, especially on Georgetown's campus. Last episode, we dug into ungrading, which reconfigures the power dynamics in the classroom in terms of assessment. In this episode, we're pivoting slightly to discuss gender, another facet of power and identity that shapes our daily lives in countless ways, whether you know it or not. And specifically, gender in the classroom. We talked with founding director of Georgetown's LGBTQ Resource Center, Shivagami Subaraman, and three professors, Amanda Phillips, Elizabeth Velez, and Heath Pearson, to hear their points of view on how gender expression informs so much of what happens in the classroom. Here's Shiva, who teaches in the Department of Performing Arts, talking about how gender has historically affected the Georgetown campus community. You see the, the patriarchy very clearly, and but it's an old-fashioned patriarchy, right? Like it's not in your face, it's not rude. It's cloaked in this the chivalrous suit of stuff. Elizabeth Velez notes that Georgetown has been a school serving solely men for most of its history not admitting women until 1960. We still have this tradition. It was a white boy's school. I mean, women weren't allowed to be here until not that long ago. Here's Amanda Phillips, who describes how unequal gender dynamics became evident during a group activity in their classroom. I remember the very first time I ever taught this class. I gave students a, um, and this is still intro to game studies, right? This is not a gender studies class. It was in fall of 2016. I broke the students into groups to have them do a timeline activity. And again, the, the ratio was about one third women. And so every single group, I think, had maybe at most two women when, when they broke them down. I think I broke them down into five or six groups. So in this collaborative activity, when they started putting their timelines together, I realized that in literally every single group, guess who was holding a pen and doing the writing for the timeline? It was the woman um, in the group. I actually stopped them. <laughs> I literally stopped the work and I was like, can we, can we just like acknowledge this moment? Um, and they had all sorts of like interesting explanations. And of course, like the primary one that they had was like, oh, well, my handwriting sucks. Like she has really pretty handwriting and therefore, you know, it, it just makes sense to have the person with the, the quote unquote pretty handwriting write our timeline. So it was, it was interesting to like point that out to them. They were all shocked. Um, and then they scrambled for excuses as to why this wasn't actually sexist. And then I made them switch pens around. These gender inequities play out in all kinds of ways, including whom students encounter in teaching roles. Representation has significant effects in the classroom. Here's Elizabeth Velez again, relaying an experience her women-identifying students shared with her in a class. Most of them had never had a woman professor in government or in business. I know. I was very shocked by that. So they began to talk really strongly about that it's sort of in those classes in particular 
it's not they give up in the class, but they give up in discussion. They just don't even try. You know, I have heard that Georgetown is now 60% women, 40% men, which is a huge shift over the years. And I still hear, though, that men are far more comfortable in class discussion. And I can even hear it in the voices of my students in feminist theory who are all women. They're often more tentative. In other words, the Georgetown community sometimes continues to enact highly traditional gender expectations. Here's Shiva again. We are actually a very gender-conforming campus. So most of my students who did not fit into that binary were most uncomfortable on this campus because of how they could dress or what they could wear and how whether they could wear makeup, whether they could wear jewelry, especially if you didn't fit into that binary. It is hands down the most binary campus I've ever been at in all time. I always had students do this activity and which was, you know, sit anywhere and observe for 10 minutes and see who really has the privilege of wearing jeans and a t-shirt and getting up and being still taken seriously as a professional, even on a campus like Georgetown, right? Where very few people wear jeans and t-shirts, but who has that privilege? <laughs> and it is clearly gendered and it's clearly racialized, right? I mean, there's, there's just no getting around that. Um, because even white women feel more, much more constrained. Amanda Phillips has had a similar experience. Gender structures our lives in, in so many weird ways. And I know at Georgetown, which I would say lags behind a little bit from the rest of the other, other institutions in terms of like queerness, in terms of gender, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but in the last few years at Georgetown, we have seen, um, or I have seen an upswing in uh, non-binary and trans-identified students um, who are out. And, you know, that introduces new complications to the classroom. And so what happens is these students are walking into your classroom, right, all presenting different I ideas of gender and race and class. And consciously or unconsciously, we as faculty are decoding that and coming to certain conclusions about it. And how do we make judgments? We all know, right? It's human nature. The evolution of gender in our classrooms demands that teachers evolve too. That means, among other things, engaging with our own gender. I think the most important thing that faculty need to be thinking about is about first, about their, themselves <laughs> in their own gendered selves. I think a lot of the challenges come because many faculty don't think about their own gender and how they present both their gender expression as well as their gender identity. And if you're not comfortable about who you are and how you think about that, you cannot just mandate a space to be safe. If you have not thought about how you present in your own gender and what your gender means to you, it is very hard to invite students to be part of that conversation. Of course, this self-awareness has to extend beyond gender because gender intersects with other aspects of identity. So your sense of your racial identity is very much part and parcel of the gender conversation. So what I would say is it's not 
it is not that one has to have an explicit conversation, right? It is about first that internal conversation we have to have with ourselves. So how does your gender play into your own idea of privilege as a racial person? Where are the nuances there? How has this allowed you to represent your gender in the classroom? What kinds of clothes do you wear? What kinds of footwear do you wear? What kinds of, how do you style your hair? All of those things speak to our students. They're not just looking and listening to what we say. They're also listening most acutely to what we are not saying. And what we are not saying is most often signaled by our body. So I think there are ways in which we present this, which is deeply, I think, enmeshed in class and race and ethnicity and all other differences that we have to become aware of. I don't think we can just talk about one and not think about how it's connected to the other parts of ourselves. And of course, it's important to acknowledge how things have changed. Here's Elizabeth Velez again. I would say our consciousness has really changed in spite of everything over the last 30, 40 years. There is this consciousness now that women do all kinds of different kinds of work. I would say to the faculty, and especially, okay, I'm just gonna say this, cause I'm allowed to because I'm old. Older faculty who, you know, have been teaching the same way for a long time and haven't seen those issues, not aware of them as much, but I have also seen faculty, older white men in my own department, in the English department, change over the years and become more conscious. So again, I think we keep talking. As faculty continue to evolve their understanding of gender as it relates to their teaching practice, it becomes more apparent that the focus of the classroom is not the teacher or any one person. It's the student community. Assistant professor in the anthropology department, Heath Pearson, weighed in on the power dynamics of the classroom. Of course, I always am working to make sure that both me and any other student is not fully dominating the, the discussion and the thinking and the exploration of whatever specific topic we happen to be in at that moment, whether it is actually a uh, let's say, a privileged white male straight person who may feel invited to consistently overshare, or whether it's someone who's embodying that presence in the classroom. I'm wanting to work into a different kind of energy. But you know, the truth is, it's, it's not us about us in the classroom. It's also about how they see each other how they interact with one another, whether they feel comfortable with each other in talking about things and in being together in that same space across racial and gender divides, right? And whether we as faculty are in tune with that so that we can create that space for them or help them connect with one another. Because, you know, by and large, they're not interested in us, really. They're only interested in each other. We are really only there to be the sort of the conductor piece, right? Like we're just there to facilitate that collective learning process. For Heath, 
This is about stepping back and making space. For me specifically, I represent, of course, as a, as a straight white male who went to an Ivy League institution for his, for his PhD, uh, who, uh, you know, is now at a, at a top 25, top 30 school for their, for their employment, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I represent as this, uh, as this kind of standardized, normative uh, white man. Um, and, and so I'm always trying to get out of the way of that. I can't do anything about that representation at the level of representation, so to speak. But what I can do is try to organize things such that I'm not in the way as that representation. This is not just me coming in and dropping what I am going to teach you in this hour and 15 minutes. It's us going through this together. And maybe I've been studying it a little bit longer. Maybe I have certain experiences that uh, some of you share and some of you don't share. But what, but what I want to do is open up this space uh, where it's dialogic rather than hierarchical, right? I, I'm interested in horizontal relationality rather than hierarchical domination. You have to provide space to learn. You have to provide space for students to like reach their own conclusions and if you sort of come super hard at them and say, like, this is the way the world is and this is the way you're supposed to think, they're going to shut down. Beyond just making space, you can actively invite this kind of learning. Here's Amanda again. For our final, like, conversation in this class, I asked them to start talking about and sharing the texture of their gender, right? And so I posed this question to them. What is the texture of your gender? You did the readings, you know, supposedly you know what the texture of gender is. Um, so it was like an uneasy silence. And then one student puts his hand up. Like, okay, go ahead. And he's like, okay. So it's like shark skin, right? In one direction, it's like super silky smooth. But in the other direction, it'll like shred your hand off. <laughs> it was such a like beautiful moment. In teaching, I will forever remember that moment because it was like, not only was it such a breakthrough, um, but it also like the students' bravery in the classroom like opened up for the other men to share. And they all had versions on that same theme of like, we're actually really squishy and soft in a lot of ways, even though there's this sort of like hardness that we can revert to when we need to. Creating this open space for students to define themselves begins early in the semester maybe even before the semester begins. One place this manifests is in your approach to student pronouns. I guess the conversation about pronouns in the classroom is still developing and is still fairly new that we're, we're still in this moment of like really high anxiety um, about how to, how to implement pronoun sharing in the classroom. There are folks who think mandatory pronoun sharing normalizes this for students. There are other folks who think you may out trans folks before they're ready um, or force them into a um, gender crisis of like, what pronouns do I use? Do I have to choose? Like if, you know, if they're still in the closet, is it going to cause them distress for, for um, using certain pronouns um, because they're not ready to, to come out? My personal approach is to try to model some of this for my students. I feel like I need to be more explicit about what I try to do with my own pronouns or what I hope my usage of pronouns brings out in other people. For students, again, 
trying to meet them where they are and maybe give them like a little push. Um, I actually send out questionnaires to my students before class where they can confidentially tell me a whole bunch of information that just helps me sort of like get to know them and to understand. I, I also solicit um, trigger warnings that they want a heads up for and, and that sort of thing. The range of possible pronouns, along with the fact that they may be in flux for some students, can make it hard for faculty to always remember to say the correct thing. Most people are very forgiving about the misgendering when it happens because they realize it happens and it's fine. I think it's just a matter of saying, I'm sorry and trying again look, and to own it, you know, and not to sort of clam up, right? To, to be able to say, look, I'm sorry, I misgendered you. Because I do that. I used to do that quite often, you know, even as the central director. And, you know, it's how you deal with it and how you then talk about it with that person that is, I think, tells you how sincere you are about, about that. This isn't about perfection. It's about respecting and listening to our students. I mean, I think the thing that we all have to do immediately is create trust in the classroom. And I, <laughs> how we do that, and I haven't kind of answered to that question, but it's such a ridiculous answer that I don't know if it's helpful at all. But I discovered by the end of the first class that I really, really like these students and the work they're doing, almost always and get excited. And that's the first class, or maybe the second class, but usually the first class. And I think that, you know, that all of us as professors want to be passionate, want to care, but I do think that our respect for them has to be immediate and that they have to see it. I think we have to listen to them. When students, speak. This is really hard. We can't just say, huh, that's interesting. We really do have to weave what they say into what it is that we're doing. Professor Velez makes a great point. Trust is paramount to a classroom. Students aren't learning because a person is talking at them. They're learning because someone they trust, a faculty member, is speaking with them. Heath talked earlier about wanting to move himself away from the center of class. Here's one way he makes that happen. I always come in with a very, very, just completely not serious question. It could be anything. What three albums do you take to, a, to the deserted island? Or what three books? Or what meal are you going to take your best friend visiting? To, you know, just things like this to get, to get everyone um, really to kind of... Uh, uh, keep the energy going that's happening before the intervention of, you know, calling to order, so to speak, which I'm trying not to call to order. I'm trying to channel energy. So moving in that direction, I think, does a couple of things specifically at the level of what we might think of like gendered power, gendered hierarchy, racist hierarchy, class hierarchy, um, these kinds of things. Again, it continues to evacuate kind of my interventionist authority by by moving us just to the level of, of conversation, even silly, you know, structured conversation has a way of popping open the kind of expectations that we might have going into a class where, for example, we're going to spend an hour and 10 minutes talking about 
um, policing and its impact at the one-to-one -one scale. Small group work is another way to center students and student ideas. I am constantly breaking students up into groups of three or four. And those spaces are spaces I don't go and sit in those spaces with them. I back myself out of it. I, I stay removed and, and they have whatever it is. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 25 minutes. It just depends. But, but I, I try every single, almost every single class has at least a significant portion of it. That's at least 10 minutes, if not more like 15 or 20 minutes. That is the students themselves in self-led discussion-based time. Equity in the classroom is not about any specific like identity that you're focusing on to make sure that things are equal, right? Equity in the classroom is about building structures in which students feel free to explore, in which students feel like they can be vulnerable and open, in which they feel their perspectives will be respected. And Gender is like an important component of that. And it's important to recognize when things are playing out unequally across genders. But for me, those things are often just indicators of a deeper problem, right? It's, it's symptoms of something else going on. Like in some ways, gender, race, et cetera, are the red herrings that are, that are sort of like indicative of a different or a, I don't want to say unrelated, but like a deeper structural issue with the way that social relationships are set up. And like classrooms are highly experimental, highly sort of like situational and closed social relationships. And of course, gender and race like inflect those relationships. But I guess I've, I've spent my time as a teacher figuring less out about how to target like specific identities and more how to, how to tweak the space so that more folks of more identities are able to speak up, learn, engage meaningfully in the conversations that we're having. Conversations like this can lead to exciting and unexpected places, some of which can be challenging to handle while still keeping the classroom open. I try never to intervene and shut down something, even when I see uh, a kind of uh, uh, gender domination playing out um, immediately in the classroom space or gendered racist domination, racialized domination uh, playing out. And so what, what I try to do in those moments is to, is to kind of do one of two things. And hopefully five years from now, I'll be able to do one of seven things. Um, but right now, this is, all, this is where I've, I've come. One is I will just simply pivot to someone else that I know is going to offer an alternative not just insight and not just experience, although both of those are very important, but someone who's gonna offer an alternative way of, of speaking about this topic, whatever that may be, right? And, and it doesn't take more than a few classes, at least in my experience so far, to start to get a sense for, for how folks answer questions, what they might, kind of pivot into when they get nervous or anxious about something or what, you know, I, I think it's, we, we kind of start to pick up on these things fairly early in the classroom. And I just try to pivot to other colleagues and students in the class, or I'll, I'll just 
back up one step and say, what does everyone else think about that? And, and open it up and asking folks, how did you come to think that? Or maybe it, it would be more appropriate to say, what experiences led to this, you know, and then it causes a kind of trip there where suddenly what seems obvious, there, there's a little trip like, oh uh, yeah, how, how did I come to think that? And sometimes folks will say, yeah, let me think about that and, and I'll talk in a few minutes. Or sometimes folks are able to kind of start thinking and we start peeling that back or, or working through those things. Ideas about gender continue to evolve, so it's important to listen and be open. You know, you're never going to keep up. <laughs> I'm still learning uh, just in my first couple of years of, of teaching, so I very much feel like... Uh, Every day I'm learning 10 times more than I'm teaching, <laughs> if not more. I think it's really important for those of us that are in these spaces where we get the privilege of getting to uh, open up spaces where folks can, can spend time reading books and, and talking. And so we continue to listen to our students and to ourselves. If we are in a Jesuit institution, you know, and we really believe in the value of self-reflection, which I do, I think that's where you start and that's where you end because, but ultimately if you don't reflect on who you are and what you bring, you're not gonna be receptive to other people and what they bring. We hope you found some good food for thought in today's episode of What We're Learning About Learning. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Molly Chihak, Eddie Maloney, David Ebenbach, Sophie Grabiak, Ellery Syverson, Noah Leiter, and Stephanie Che. And a big thanks to the faculty and staff who contributed to this episode, Shivagami Subaraman, Amanda Phillips, Elizabeth Velez, and Heath Pearson. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating mind-blowing music for our podcast. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, check out our show notes, where you'll find links to previous episodes, information about how to share your thoughts and ideas with us, our website and blog and other resources. Again, I'm Kim Heisman-Lubreski. And I'm Joe King. Thanks for listening.